0: Morning, church. Morning, those who are uh, joining us on live stream today. We're glad to have the online church with us as well. Hey, in 2004, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series. October 2004, first time in 86 years. First time in 86 years, thus ending the curse of the who? The curse of the Bambino, right? That happened 1919, 1920 off season the Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees, thus incurring, he's sometimes known as the Bambino, the curse of the Bambino. They didn't win a World Series for another 86 years. So a World Series victory is great in and of itself, but sometimes to fully appreciate a victory, you need to go back in history a little bit, get some of the context, maybe even understand a curse. Well, that's the way it is with the victory of heaven as well. Now, when a Christian dies to go to heaven, sometimes we we say it this way, it's our loss, but their victory. But to fully appreciate, fully appreciate, and understand heaven, we won't do that. We won't be able to do that unless we go back in history, take a look at a curse. And by the way, where do you find baseball in the Bible? Yeah, Genesis 1-1 in the big inning. You know, and the, the sad thing is, it doesn't get any better than that today, but uh, we're in our end series, you know, in, in game series here in the Book of Revelation, and today we're talking about in game heaven. We'll be talking about it next Sunday as well. It's a two-part lesson, but today uh, we're going to say we're going to make four statements about mankind and paradise. So today it's going to be all mankind and paradise. This mankind and paradise. The other. And we're going somewhere with this, so, so hang with me. So the first statement is, mankind and paradise together forever, God's original intent. Mankind and paradise together forever, God's original intent. So I'm going to read kind of a long passage from Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 26 through 31. Scriptures will be up here on the screen. Please follow along. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth skipping in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and the livestock, and over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and said, be fruitful, and increase in number, and fill the earth, and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground, God said, "If I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they'll be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. God saw that it was so. God saw that all he had made, it was very good. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. Now, what I've just read to you, probably for the Christians who are here, pretty familiar account from Genesis chapter 1. We could call that the prototype. This is the way God set it up in the beginning, and this is the way God meant for it to be forever. All right, by paradise here, I'm referring to, of course, the Garden of Eden. I'm referring to the earth as it was originally created. So mankind and paradise in this home that God created together forever. God designed this world to be our home, specifically designed it. He's good at that. Uh, There is a movie on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing, but I've got an excerpt for us today. It's called The Privileged Planet, and part of it is to show scientifically and mathematically how our environment, the earth, our solar system, and so on, is specifically designed. There's at least 20 constants, they're called, that are designed for complex life, carbon-based life for mankind to exist, and so I'm going to show you a five-minute clip from that movie I want us to be impressed this morning by the science and the math but also this is just another way of making the larger point here this was God's intent for us to be on this planet forever if you would roll that clip please
1: life really did exist And what ingredients beyond liquid water might be required the list of necessary factors continues to grow. We live on this paper-thin
2: crust. If the Earth's crust were significantly thicker, then plate tectonic recycling could not take place.
1: The Earth's crust varies in thickness from about four to 30 miles. It consists of more than a dozen tectonic plates that are in constant motion. This dynamic geology regulates the planet's interior temperature, recycles carbon, mixes chemical elements essential to living organisms, and shapes the continents. Deep within the Earth's interior, the movement of liquid iron generates a protective magnetic field essential to complex life. If our planet was smaller, its magnetic field would be weaker, allowing the solar wind to strip away our atmosphere, slowly transforming the Earth into a dead, barren world much like Mars.
2: We need an oxygen atmosphere, and the oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere that the Earth has is necessary for complex life.
1: As seen from space, The Earth's atmosphere glows as a thin blue ribbon of light. Measuring less than 1% of the planet's diameter, it is composed of a mixture of nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. As a result, our atmosphere ensures a temperate climate, protection from the sun's radiation, and the correct combination of gases necessary for liquid water and complex life.
2: For a size of planet like Earth, our moon is big. The current thinking is that if our moon didn't exist, neither would we.
1: One-fourth the size of the Earth, the moon's powerful gravitational pull stabilizes the angle of its axis at a nearly constant 23 and a half degrees. This ensures relatively temperate seasonal changes, and the only climate in the solar system mild enough to sustain complex living organisms.
2: If we find life out there, especially complex or even intelligent life, it will be around a star similar to our own.
1: We orbit what is known as a spectral type G2 dwarf main sequence star. It is well suited for our needs. If the sun were less massive, like 90% of the stars in the galaxy, the habitable zone would be smaller. To remain within its boundaries, the Earth would have to be positioned closer to its star. Here, increased gravity would lock our planet's rotation into synchronization with its orbit. While one side of the Earth continually faced the sun and increased radiation from solar flares, the dark side of the planet would lay shrouded in perpetual cold and ice. It is unlikely complex life could tolerate these drastic extremes in temperature. A lot of things went right on Earth to have uh, yielded complex life, absolutely.
2: The number of factors that have been postulated uh, has grown. Currently, the typical number you would see is, in a typical list, would have something like 20. We find that we need to be at the right location in the galaxy, that we're inside the circumstellar habitable zone of a star, that we're in a planetary system with giant planets that can shield the inner planets from too many comet impacts, that we're orbiting the right kind of star that's not too cool or not too hot, that we're on a planet that has a moon that can stabilize the tilt of its axis, that we're on a planet that's a terrestrial planet, a planet that has a crust that's just thick enough that it can maintain plate tectonic activity, that it has enough heat in its interior that it's still circulating its liquid iron core so it can generate a magnetic field. That it has an atmosphere that has enough oxygen to allow for complex organisms to survive. That it has enough water and enough continents to allow for the diversity of life or an active biosphere that you need to support complex creatures such as ourselves. All these factors have to be met at one place and time in the galaxy if you're going to have a planet As habitable as the Earth, which you need for complex and even technological life.
0: Okay, boy, aren't we lucky that all that just happened? Well, no, it didn't just happen. In fact, NASA's SETI project hasn't even found another planet out there with liquid water on it. You have to have the liquid water just to start with. So, my point is remember, my point, mankind and paradise together forever. God built us his home, and that was his original intent. Second thing, mankind and paradise curse. Mankind in paradise cursed, sins destructive result. Back to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17. To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed it is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Now, if you have any religious background at all, maybe grew up in a church, you're familiar with the basic outlines of the story here. I didn't read it all. But Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were forbidden to eat the fruit, and they ate the fruit. And so everybody starts getting cursed by God. So God curses the serpent. God curses Adam. He curses Eve. And he curses the ground we saw here. Why did God curse the ground? I mean, come on, God, what do you have against the ground? The ground's the only innocent party here that didn't do anything wrong. Hey, it's a great question. What we believe it is is this. Mankind and the ground, the earth, are inextricably linked. What happens to one happens to the other, right? Because from the ground, man was created. God scoops up the dust of the earth, forms and fashions it, breathes life into it, and you have a man. And when we die, we go back to the earth. So wasn't my point here is it's not just man that's cursed. We know that, but it's the ground and the, the creation that's cursed as well. And the New Testament sheds even more light on the extent of this curse in creation. Romans 8:19, for instance, Paul writes, "For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope." the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. How much creation was cursed? All creation. Says it three times. What's included in all creation? Apparently, the heavens and the earth that were created in Genesis chapter one. If it was created it's included by Paul in all creation. So that means this is the curse did not just come upon the garden of Eden, it didn't just come upon our planet. It's not just a global curse. It's a universal curse. It takes into account our solar system, our galaxy and all of the galaxies because all of this apparently was to be under the dominion of Adam and Eve and their progeny. So that's how far the curse extends. I mean, we're so used to living on a planet where death surrounds us. Plants die, animals die, we die. We're so, and, and it's easy to think, well, it's always been that way. It hasn't always been that way. Death was never in God's original intent, as far as we can tell. And the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, death came through a man. So before that, that sin and that fall, apparently, Adam and Eve were going to live forever. Most living things probably were. But death was introduced by sin and the curse. C.S. Lewis is a name that some of you may recognize, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and other things. But he also wrote science fiction. He wrote a science fiction space trilogy. And in the second book of that trilogy, it's called Perelandra, And there, the author, C.S. Lewis, imagines Venus as an Edenic planet with two inhabitants, a man and a woman. They're like the prototype Adam and Eve. But they have not sinned. And so there's been no fall. So he gets to imagine this pristine planet, what the plants would be like and what the animals are like, a planet that's not under a curse. However, the tempter is on his way. And so the, pro, the uh, protagonist, Ransom, gets in his spaceship, and he's traveling from Earth to Venus to prevent the man and the woman on Paralander, the Venus, from falling to the temptation. So they won't experience the same thing that happened on Earth. So that's what the story is all about. Now, we know today that's not possible. Number one, because Venus is uninhabitable. But number two, if what we've said right here so far is true, Venus is already cursed. Mars is cursed. Saturn is cursed. Every planet in our solar system is cursed. And every other solar system and galaxy is under the curse. Mankind and paradise cursed. All of creation. Okay, thirdly, third statement we want to make. Mankind and paradise redeemed, redeemed, Christ's decisive victory. A number of verses here, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Revelation 22.3, we finally get to Revelation here, no longer will there be any curse. Mankind and paradise redeemed by Christ's decisive victory. What does that word mean? That's religious jargon. That's a God word. Redeemed. Well, let's say you get yourself in a tight spot financially. You're going to get paid at the first of the month, June. You got a few days left here in May, and you got you're out of money, but you got a bill that's due. You got to pay. So uh, you run on down to the pawn shop, and you're going to pawn, let's say you pawn your wedding ring, or family heirloom, wedding ring, and you hand it over to the pawnbroker, and he gives you a hundred bucks. Okay, so you haven't sold it. You pawned it. It's collateral. It's like a loan. You got, so you got maybe a six-month term here. So you use that $100. You pay the bill. You get through your hard, your tough spot. You get paid the first of the month. Now you're flush with money. So you go back to the pawn broker. You pay him back the hundred bucks plus interest, and he gives you back the ring. What have you just done? You have redeemed. You've redeemed your ring. Or you've redeemed redeemed that heirloom. It means you bought it back. That's what the word means. It means to buy back. And so the idea here, when the New Testament says Christ redeemed us from the curse, it means, first of all, that God owned us. We belong to God. Why do we belong to God? Why does he own us? Because he created us. That's how it works with creation. Psalm 24, 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people, we all belong to him. Why? For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas, and he built it on the ocean depths. So God created the earth. He created the heavens. He created us. By virtue of creation, we belong to God. If you create something, you own it. If you write a book, you have copyrights. If you invent something, you get a patent. That's your patent. It belongs to you. What you create, you own. God owned us, and then we send ourselves away. Came under the curse of death. The punishment of eternal death. And you know this. Just another way of saying it. When Christ came, he, he redeemed us. He bought us back from death by paying that price for us. When he died on the cross, it's a substitutionary death. He suffers the penalty of eternal condemnation in our place, thus buying us back for God. Not just us, though. Remember the whole message today, mankind and paradise. Christ redeemed us, and he also redeemed the creation. I got some lyrics from a song I'm going to put up here. Now, my first quiz was for baseball fans. This quiz is for you religious types out there. Read these lyrics, and you see if you can tell me what hymn these lyrics come from. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What's that song? Joy to the world, right? Joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow. He comes to make his blessings known. How far? As far as the curse is found. How far is the curse found? That curse is in every cell of our bodies. That's why we struggle with sickness. That's why we struggle with cancer. That's why we struggle with heart disease. That's why we get sick and die. That curse is in our ground. That's why people are suffering right now in Oklahoma from tornadoes, from there are floods, there are hurricanes, there are droughts. Why? This this world is under a curse. That's why there's so many dead planets out there. I don't think all those planets were dead to begin with, but but there are dead planets out there. As far as the curse is found, that's where the effects of redemption are to be felt. You ever uh, heard this acronym? Here's another one. Another little quiz for you. NIMBY. N-I-M-B-Y. What does that stand for? Anybody know? NIMBY? Not in my backyard. That's right. Not in my backyard. So uh, somebody wants to build a nuclear reactor waste dump? Not in my backyard. A brain-destroying cell phone tower? Not in my backyard. A a crime magnet crack house? Not in my backyard. It's about people who are just taking a stand, maybe for their neighborhood or their environment, the world, just saying, hey, I'm drawing a line here. Not in my backyard. Not going to happen. This is what God did. I mean, Satan is like a, a cosmic home invader. He came into the The home that God created for us, he invaded it. He brought his curse with him. And when Jesus comes, he does his work of redemption, dies on the cross. God draws a line in the sand, says, not in my backyard, Satan. You've come this far and no further. He pushes back. God has never relinquished the original deed of ownership that he has on you or on this planet or all of creation. Mankind and paradise redeemed, Christ's decisive victory, and then we got one more, one more statement. Mankind and paradise restored, the final chapter. Mankind and paradise restored. All right, three or four more verses here, starting in the Old Testament. An Old Testament promise from God, Isaiah 66:22. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Second Peter 3:13. In keeping with this promise, what promise, Peter? Well, the promise we just read from the Old Testament. and keeping with that promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And Acts 3.21, Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. So when it comes to redemption, there's an already but not yet paradox. We're already redeemed in one sense, but in another sense, not yet. I mean our spirits are redeemed, we're new, we're we're born again spiritually, but in our physical bodies, not yet. These bodies have not yet been redeemed, not till the resurrection. Hey, that battle that we read about in Revelation that's depicted over and over again, the spiritual warfare, the victory in that battle has already been won. It's it's decided. We know how that's going to turn out. So it's already, but not yet, because we still are in that battle. We're fighting it, all of us, right now. And this planet that we live on, yeah, its redemption has already been accomplished by the work of Christ, but not yet. That time is still to come. You know, we've never seen our home planet as God originally created it we've only seen this cursed version of it we've only seen this fallen version of it but even still as fallen as it is it still ha- there's still enough beauty there of its original essence to make our hearts sing sometimes we just we love our home planet sometimes Sometimes we're not as excited about going to heaven as we might be. I mean, everybody wants to go to heaven because they don't want to go to the alternative. But we're not really excited about it because the vision of heaven that we've often been sold is of disembodied spirits flitting from cloud to cloud, plucking harps and singing in a never-ending church service. That does not do it for a lot of people. Now, how many people here play the harp? Yeah, see? That does not do it. Not even for me, and I'm a preacher. But that's not really really, the picture of heaven that we get from the Bible. I preached on heaven a few years ago, and a lady in our church wrote me this email afterwards because I said, you don't really want to go to heaven. And this is what she wrote. If you would have asked me why I don't want to go to heaven, I would have told you it isn't that I don't want to go. I just don't want to die. I absolutely love this planet that we live on. The sky is so beautiful, a new canvas constantly throughout the day. The tree, the grass, the flowers, and I could go on, but I do so much love life here with my family. Life is great. I want to see what my kids and grandchildren become. What will they look like and be like? I'm only afraid of the dying and of not being a part of this wonderful, awesome planet that we live on. That kind of resonates with me. Maybe it resonates with some of you too. And the thing of it is, that's not wrong. That, those desires that we have to live on in a home like this, in bodies like these, those are God-given expectations. That's what he had in mind, really. Remember, his original intent, that was it. And that's what the Bible depicts is what God has in store for us. He's not going to annihilate everything and start all over with a new Adam and a new Eve. He's going to redeem everything and start over with us in new bodies, and the current heavens and earth will go through a purging fire like gold being purified from its dross. God is going to purify all of the out, the residue of sin and the curse from the heavens and this earth. We want to keep living. We just want to be in better bodies and on a better earth, and that's what we're going to get, new bodies and a new earth. Mankind in paradise restored. That's the day that's coming. Now, what is that going to be like? What's it going to be like to be in those new bodies and on that new earth? What is that version of heaven? What does that look like? I'm so glad you asked because that's what I'll be talking about next Sunday. We're going we're to go into this in as much detail as we can from the hints that we have and the scriptures that we have in the Bible. So come on back and learn all about our new home on the new heavens and the new earth next Sunday. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this picture that John gives us and other writers of the scriptures give us of what you have in store for us in the future. Not only does all of creation groan longing for that time, we groan longing for that time too. I mean, we're all struggling here in different ways. Our bodies you know, are, are breaking down in many cases and we're surrounded by death of our loved ones and families, and often all too soon. So we so love you for your promise of redemption through Jesus, not just the forgiveness of sins, but giving us the bodies that we should have had to begin with and a new home on the new earth, the home of righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
3: Savior, I come quiet in my soul. Remember Redemption's Hill, your blood was spilled.
0: this time, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. If you're new to us, we'll be passing trays with the pieces of bread and the cups of juice. And as that goes by, just take, uh, take up those emblems. After a time of meditation, you may partake. We do this every Sunday here at Vera Christian Church. Well, this is for all Christians who are here today. You know, this is Memorial Day weekend, and that, that's the day, Memorial Day is when we remember those who died in the service of our country, in the armed services, various branches. So that's it's more than just uh, picnics and sales. It's Memorial Day. Well, every Sunday, in a sense, it's Memorial Day, isn't it? Every Sunday, we Christians come together and we have communion. And what we're doing is we're remembering the one, the one who gave his life, who died so that we could not only have forgiveness, but freedom, freedom from our sins. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what these emblems represent, the bread representing Jesus' body and the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us, giving the greatest sacrifice one could ever give. Uh, for his friends. In Jesus' name, amen.